Well, I believe this will be my last message in this series on the Sermon of the Mount. At least that's my intentions as of now. I'm looking at chapter 7 in particular. Uh, Pastor Bob a few weeks ago touched on a, a couple parts of chapter 7. So it's not like I'm going to go in depth on all of chapter 7. But there are parts of it that I really want to uh, point out some things on and encourage us with, challenge us with from chapter 7. And, and it's always good, I think, to remind ourselves when we're, we're looking through what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, this message, this sermon is being given to us by Jesus himself. This is Jesus teaching us. And as Bob mentioned a couple of weeks ago, a lot of it's in a prophetic sense because most of this Sermon on the Mount is about Christians. Most of it is about Christians, how we live our lives, how we experience as, as Christians, what we experience as the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us, how we are to relate to one another, how we are re- to relate to the world around us, how we're to relate to God himself in, in our time of prayer and fellowship, all of these things. And chapter 7, um, you could you could call it or highlight it a lot of different ways, but I, I, I'm looking at it today from the perspective. Chapter 7 seems to be all about judging and judgment. Judgment. So the title of my message is, A Day of Judgment is Coming, but you and I aren't the judge. We are not the judge. And Jesus is going to explain some things to us about judging. Now, there's probably not a verse in Scripture that, at least me personally, but I think a lot of us get thrown at us by non-believers, people who maybe have a little bit of understanding of the Bible, sometimes even by Christians who are nominally familiar with the Scripture or maybe are just so well-intentioned that they use this Scripture, and I believe they use it way out of context, totally out of context. What they do is they they use this Scripture to encourage us to kind of just lay back Keep the peace almost at no matter what the cost. Tolerance is the key thing. Unity at any cost, especially when it comes to any type of human behavior or human belief system that we might find out there. And that scripture is it's chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Anybody ever had that thrown at you when you're trying to share something or you're making a comment about something? Do not judge. My mother and I had a conversation yesterday. And I said, Mom, you give me this one so many times growing up that I can hardly wait. So I'm preaching to my mother this morning. (laughs) That's not quite true. We had a long discussion yesterday. It was really good. See what happens when you come to my office? (laughs) A little role reversal takes place. Michael, you're not supposed to judge. I know, Mother. You don't understand. Michael... Don't you, you know, how many of you know you have a name like Michael when that comes out instead of just Mike? You may not be in trouble, but you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Michael. So, Mom, this is just for you. No, I'm just kidding. Mom, (laughs) sorry, Mom, I just can't leave it alone. She said, well, well, Michael... What might make me misunderstand it like that? 
And I said lots of things, Mother, but one of the things that makes sometimes a well-intentioned Christian misunderstand, misunderstand or misinterpret a scripture is their spiritual gifts. You understand that? For example, my mom has a gift of compassion and a gift of mercy that just doesn't end. When you have those kinds of gifts, sometimes you read something in scripture and you don't want to say what it might really be saying, right? Because you don't want to hurt anybody. You don't want to offend anybody. So sometimes it can actually be our spiritual gifts. Other times it's just a lack of information, lack of knowledge, lack of understanding, or taking one little tiny scripture out of context and trying to make application everywhere. Do not judge. Man, in our culture today, Christians get accused of judging all the time. When we speak truth, we get judged. There are things in our culture that the Bible just flat out calls evil, and the world says it's good. Look what's happening in the sexual area in our culture, marriage in our culture. The Bible's pretty clear. No, the Bible's really clear about sexual morality. But the world says, hey, no, 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 anything goes. Who are you to judge? Who are you to judge two people who really love each other? Who are you to judge? Well, depends on what they mean. There's other things. Abortion. You don't understand. You really mean that someone who has been raped and got pregnant is sinning if they abort? Yes, that's what I really mean. But it's not me saying that. It's the word of God saying that. We don't want to be tolerant and have unity at any price. But when we speak truth, we need to always speak it in love. Part of the problem with the Christian church is we speak truth, but there's not much love in it. We don't just look at the sin, we condemn the sinner. And as we look at this section of scripture in in chapter 7, Jesus is laying it out pretty clear, I think, about judging. Do not judge, lest you be judged. Does that mean that we are never to express our opinion about anything or anyone? It can't possibly mean that. Because if you read just a little bit further in this chapter, you get down to verse 6. He's talking about dogs and swine. We'll look at that in a few minutes. Don't cast your pearls before dogs and swine. How do I know who the dogs and swine are if I'm not judging something? I must have to judge something. Goes on a little further and talks about you will know them by their fruit. Well, how do I know whether it's good fruit or bad fruit unless I'm judging something? Matthew chapter 18, it talks about discipline in the church. When someone needs to be rebuked or corrected, discipline in the church, how they're supposed to do it. Well, how discipline in the church, why would there be discipline? We're not to judge anybody. So it cannot mean that. It cannot mean that we're not to have an opinion or express an opinion about people or things. So what does it mean? That's the important thing that we need to understand as Christians. What does it mean when it says do not judge? Well, the word judge in the Greek is krino, krino. And it has at least four different meanings used just in Scripture. And if you go onto lexicons, you can even find more meanings than that. So we're not used to that. We just take a word and we look at it and then we just apply whatever we think it means in the English language. It means to judge what is right and what is wrong. To judge what is right, judge what is wrong. We are to weigh things out, look at things, weigh them out. How do we judge what is right and what is wrong? According to the scriptures, according to truth. We judge what is right, what is wrong, the actions. 
the words. We can judge or to form an opinion about a person or thing. It has that distinct meaning. We can form an opinion about a person or thing. Are they dogs and swine, for example? Are they false prophets, for example? How about their fruit? Is it good or bad, for an example? We are to judge, or we can judge that way. That word has that meaning. It also means to judge in a judicial sense, the court, to give a verdict, which would mean to proclaim innocence or condemn, for example. It can mean that, and it can also have a more passive meaning that we willingly submit ourselves to be judged by others. So it has all those different meanings. So we need to understand and look at the context of how it's used and what does it mean here. I would offer to you that what it means here is we are not to judge to condemn anybody. We are not the judge who condemns. That's only God's role. And I believe he is talking, do not judge, do not condemn, because as you condemn others, you're going to find yourself condemned in different ways, in different areas. So when we look at that, that, that narrows it down so all of a sudden we can look at this scripture and take it in context and not to judge. Because if we walk around and we think it means we're not to form an opinion, we're not to, to judge fruit, if we're not to do any of the, we're to do no judging, we're just like the world that would say anything goes. Anything goes. And that's not true. As Christians, we believe the word of God is truth. It's absolute truth. Absolute truth. The Word of God is true for all people, all places, for all time, in every situation. We believe it is true. Now, how we use that truth is important, obviously, for our testimony and our walk with the Lord. There is a spirit that condemns this hypercritical spirit, and it's really a spirit of self-righteousness, I think, more than anything else. We condemn hypercritical condemnation. You ever meet a very hypercritical person? You know, criticism in and of itself is a good thing. Criticism, when it's done properly, is constructive. It educates, it encourages, it points us in the right direction when it's done well and in the right, with the right spirit. Criticism, constructive criticism. But there is this hypercritical spirit that's critical of everything and everybody. Get a group of people in a circle and watch it and listen. Doesn't take long to figure out where the hypercritical spirit is. And you know something I've noticed? It's very contagious when it manifests in a small group. All of a sudden, somebody's becoming very critical of this situation or that person or what someone's done, and before long, the whole group is just ripping it apart in this hypercritical spirit that's taken over. This person who is hypercritical, and I confess to you, I hope I'm not that anymore, but I've been there. A critical spirit. If you struggle with rejection in a big way, chances are pretty good this is one of your symptoms of your rejection issues. You're very critical of everybody else. You know that person that's so critical that just drives you crazy? It's sometimes because you're looking in a mirror and you hate what you see in someone else that you know is in you. Hypercritical. Critical spirit. Critical tongue. Critical words. It's one who almost delights in criticizing. 
Matter of fact, they find joy in being critical and criticizing other people. It will kill the church. It will kill the church. A critical spirit will just open the door wide open for a spirit of strife and disunity. It doesn't mean we don't speak truth. It doesn't mean we don't judge fruit. It doesn't mean we don't judge actions. It doesn't mean any of that. But we don't condemn. We don't condemn. What is a, the characteristics of someone who judges so wrongly? Listen to some of these and see if you can relate or at least you know someone else that struggles with these as you criticize them in your mind. I'm glad a few of you caught that. One of the characteristics of one who judges wrongly is this. They are quick to judge even when the manner they're judging has no influence or effect on them whatsoever. Really, it's one of those things that should be of no concern to me whatsoever, but boy, oh boy, do I have a strong opinion. I may not know anything about it, but I'm going to criticize it to no end. It has nothing to do with me. A second characteristic of it is they put personal prejudice in place of principle. Personal prejudice, what does that mean? Well, I don't like that, therefore, I am already prejudiced towards something. So now I start judging them or philosophies or beliefs based on a prejudice instead of truth, instead of principle. Third characteristic besides personal prejudice is personality. I just don't like them. I don't like their personality. I don't like, I don't like the way they carry themselves. I, I, so anything that comes out of their mouth, obviously, I'm going to criticize. I'm not going to agree with. I just disagree and be critical because of personality. And you'll find ourselves, if you're not careful, you you fall into this trap. You're getting critical of things that have nothing to do with you. You're getting critical of things because of your prejudices. You're getting critical of personalities. It happens all the time. All the time. And we're judging them. We're condemning whatever it is we are judging and being critical of is wrong. Here's another characteristic. You are habitually expressing your opinion when you don't have a clue what the facts are. I know no one ever does that. I have once, (laughs) or maybe more. It happens so quickly. Something catches our eye or catches our ear or something. Boy, it's nice if it's somebody we already don't like their personality and we already have a prejudice towards them. We hear something, man alive, we form a judgmental opinion and they're guilty. And we don't have a clue what was really going on. And the fifth characteristic, and you can make your own long list, never takes the trouble to try to understand the circumstances. Never ready to excuse and never ready to exercise mercy. Just quick to judge and condemn. You know, I saw something this week, and if you've paid attention to much news or looked online or done the social media thing, you might have seen this too. How many of you know who Joel Osteen is? He's a pastor, a head pastor of 
what they call the largest church in America. Their church, it used to be a basketball stadium. It seats 17,500 people every Sunday. Every week he speaks to over 7 million people. Now, I have prejudices that I need to be careful of with him. I have personality things that I have issues with with him. I've got some preformed opinions, probably not based on fact. But this guy just got absolutely crucified this week, him and his whole church. They're down in Houston, where the floodwaters are. How many of you heard about their church this week? Yeah, there are some of the most vicious, hateful things you can imagine. People's prejudices, people's personalities, not knowing the facts, have just been ripping him and Lakewood Church to pieces. And they don't have any idea what the facts were, what the facts are. As facts have come out, of course, the damage has already been done. I mean, if you've got non-Christians, if you've got a press that hates everything about Christianity, hates everything about a church, hates everything about a pastor who's got a $10.5 million home, hates everything about a pastor who, who drives around in fancy cars and wears suits that cost as much as my house, you hear my prejudices? I can hardly wait to hear something bad about that guy. Right? That's what the world did. They crucified him. I don't agree with a lot some of you teaching. I don't agree with a, what, what a lot of things he preaches. I don't believe I agree with some of the things he makes his, my, up his mind in a lifestyle choices. But guess what? That's none of my business. What are the facts? They accused him of shutting the door of the church to the people who were coming and looking for shelter in the flood. Well, then truth comes out. Part of their parking lot in the basement of the facility was being flooded. It wasn't safe right away. Well, as soon as they said that, here come the pictures of the streets and the parking lot. Well, nobody tells you they were taken the next day after the water had receded. They've opened the church. They will probably donate millions of dollars just from that church. They're opened at the clothes and the food and the diapers and things that have come in. It's unbelievable. But nobody waited till they had the story. Nobody waited for the facts. And not only is the world guilty of this, the church can be guilty of this. There were big, major, megachurch pastors were lining up to rip them apart. Ripping apart Lakewood Church. Ripping apart Joel Osteen. Whatever my prejudices are, whatever personality issues I have, I need to set those things aside and say, wait a minute. What are the facts? And the reality is, most of us are never going to know the real facts. What are the circumstances? There was nobody at the church except two security guys. How are you going to handle an influx of how many hundreds or thousands of people until your staff can safely get there, until your volunteers can safely get there? The circumstances. This is just an example of what it looks like when this hypercritical spirit is turned loose and the character tra- characteristics of it begin to manifest. And, and, and quite honestly, it's really easy to fall into this attitude. I need to confess before you, the first time I saw the article, I thought, doesn't surprise me. (laughs) Might get their new carpet dirty. Seriously. It's like, kill that thing, that critical spirit. You don't know. But you know what? This is not a new spirit. This isn't something new that's just... You know when it started? In the garden. When man fell and man sinned. 
This is just part of the destruction that sin has caused in humanity, in humans. It's something we need to continually work on and battle against now because it's almost part of us because of the sinful nature of the world we live in. It's not new. Let me read a scripture to you. And you probably want to line up to be these two guys. It says in Luke 9, verse 51, When the days were approaching for his ascension, referring to Jesus, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus to come. But they did not receive Jesus because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume every one of them? Amen. They're those darn Samaritans anyway. They're nothing but dogs. We hate them. They want to worship on Mount Gerizim, and we're going to Jerusalem. That's why they won't receive us. Prejudices, personality. They didn't have all the facts. They didn't. Jesus just flat out rebukes them. And I, you know, I like to imagine things that aren't necessarily in the Word of God, so I try to warn you. But can't you just leave Jesus looking at these two guys? And, you know, and, and under his breath, he's going, Really? And some of your translations add the words, like Elijah did. Some of you know the story of Elijah when he was facing all the Baal priests, all the, the, the cult leaders, and, and the fire came from him and killed them all. You know what? Sometimes a hypercritical spirit tries to come across as, I'm so jealous for God. I'm so jealous for God. You might put up with that, but I'm too jealous. I'm so much more spiritual than you. I see the air and the evil and the sin there. I don't know the circumstances. I don't have all the facts, but we need to be so cautious. The disciples walking with Jesus blew it. Jesus just looks at them, and he says to them, he turned and rebuked them, and he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Jesus treated people differently all the time. You know, when they brought the adulterous woman who was called in adultery to him, and they were all ready to stone him. Jesus says, hey, you, you that are innocent, you that have not sinned, you go ahead and throw the first rock, then the rest of you go ahead and follow of course, all those hypercritical Pharisees who had set the trap had to walk away. The Samaritan woman at the well, you know, had all these husbands. And the one you're living with now you're not married to. Why, the disciples probably would have wanted to cast fire down on her too. Jesus instead did what? He shared the gospel with her. He shared the gospel with her. He knew. Of course, he has an advantage. He knows everything, right? Matthew, the disciple, the one we've been studying what he wrote for all these weeks. He was this low-life scumbag tax collector that Jesus called to be a disciple. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man? The wee little man was he? Climbed up in that sycamore tree? Because for the Lord you wanted to see, right? 
Everybody else was going to be crit. What the heck is he doing now? What is our master doing? Jesus, have you lost your mind? It's so easy to slip into that critical judgmental spirit that condemns. And we can hide by our spirituality and try to hide behind it. James and John, they were judging the Samaritans. And talk about final judgment. Should we cast, call fire down from heaven to kill them all? Was more acting out of a spirit of revenge. Could have been motivated by the simple fact, you know, that you, you, when you read that scripture, it says they did not receive him because he was going to Jerusalem. That'll slide right by us if we don't know a little bit of the history. They argued. We're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim. No, we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Now he comes into Samaria and he says he's going to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to worship. He was making a choice. They didn't like the choice. But Jesus still rebuked James and John. Don't be fooled by a spirit of hypercritical spirit that's pretending to be the zeal of God. It's not. And Jesus gives reasons why not to judge. As you've noticed throughout the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus tells us something, then he backs it up with some reasons to to really explain to us why it's so important. He says, don't judge that you may not be judged. First of all, if you judge others, they may judge you. Most of the people that I judge, I don't think I want them judging me. I I don't want them on the jury. And also with God. God judges. He judges in different ways. At least three that I can come up with real quick. One, he judges whether there's going to be eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. Unfortunately, if you're a Christian and you've accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you don't need to worry about that judgment. We're already in. The Bible says we may know where we're going. But he does judge. There are going to be many on that day are going to be in for the shock of eternity. He judges his children. That's us. He uses the word judge there, and we can get a little bit nervous or almost fearful, but it's just judging. He, He does it to discipline. How many of us don't judge our children? And we discipline our children. We train up our children. Why do we do it? Because we're ogres? No, because we love them, and we want the best for them. When God judges, he is judging us as a loving heavenly father to discipline us, to correct us, to keep us on the right track, to draw us back to himself. What kind of father would he be if he never did that? The Holy Spirit continually drawing us. In a couple of scriptures in 1 Corinthians 11, it says this in verse 31, if we judged ourselves rightly, we wouldn't need to be judged. In other words, if we really looked in the mirror, the Lord wouldn't have to probably correct us quite as often. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned. So he judges to correct, discipline, keep us on the right track. It says again in Hebrews chapter 12, Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Man, if you could read that word, especially scourges, because you just want to grab your head and go, oh my gosh. It's 
It's where, again, we need to understand the, what the words are used for. Basically, all he's saying is, hey, he's going to discipline us. I might even give you a gentle spanking. Well, that's my words, not his. To keep us on track, because he loves us. He cares so much about us. So there's a judgment of eternity, there's a judgment of disciplines, and there's a third judgment that we are going to all face as Christians, and that's where God is going to divvy out the rewards. We are going to receive rewards in heaven. My mother asked me what they were, so I just made some things up. No, <laughs> I said, I don't really know. The Bible talks about jewels in our crown our, our, you know, that we're going to receive. Uh, I know a brother, Chuck Porter, most of you have been He's been here. He believes that personally that it's the proximity to the throne of God. The greater the reward, the closer you get. I don't know what they are. I do know this. Whatever they are, and however many or few I get, I'm going to be so excited it's not going to bother me if you have more or less. I won't even know, probably. It's going to be so good. But I know there's no envy or jealousy in heaven, so I don't need to worry about it. But he does judge. We are going to receive rewards for the way that we live our lives here on earth. Well, that should be a motivation. We know he loves us no matter what, but he's got this pile of rewards that he wants to give Mike. I'm, I want to be jealous for them too. They're not my, my ultimate end goal, but I know if I please him, there's rewards. It's not about salvation. I'm already saved. But whatever those rewards are, if they're from God, they're probably pretty good. Let's go for it. So he does judge in those different ways. Then he goes on and he talks about, in verse 2, the standard that you judge others will be the standard you judge by. I don't know if that hurts. There was a, a Jewish teacher that said, there's two ways to be judged, the justice of God or the mercy of God. Well, I believe he was an heir because he's always going to be just. And to his children, he's always going to be merciful. But I think that's something we can learn from is the mercy of God. Just think what you and I deserved as sinners. In his mercy, by his grace, he called you and me and he gave us the grace to accept the offer of eternal life. Accept the offer. We couldn't have even done it without his grace. And then we received it by faith because we believed him. Then he goes into the moat and beam story, and I'm not going to spend much time on that, but he says it this way, a moat, that, that word really, it's almost like a speck. The picture is almost like, you know, the, a, a piece of wheat chaff gets in your eye. And here I come to help you get it out. And I got this great big beam in my eye. How many of you want me operating on your eye? And this is what his point is. We need to deal with this thing in our own eye so we can deal humbly and gently with a brother or sister in Christ. It's impossible unless that beam is removed, whatever that beam is. It may be a prejudice, it may be an opinion, whatever it is, that critical spirit, whatever it is, it needs to be removed. We need to humbly just submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit and that reveal, reveal the beam in my eye, reveal to me the log in my eye because I care about my brother and sister in Christ and I see something in their eye that they'd be blessed if it wasn't there. But it takes humility to go there. And this is what he's teaching. He's teaching us to, to, to be able to judge. We need to make sure 
that all of those things that are in our fleshly nature have been crucified. Then he goes into the dogs and the swine. And this is another line you hear a lot. Sometimes I hear it when, when we're Christians and we don't want to go evangelize. Well, we're not supposed to cast our pearls before the swine anyway, right? Who are the dogs? Who are the swine? Well, it takes some discernment. It takes some looking at fruit. But when we see it in the scriptures, one thing to remember is Jesus dealt with everybody differently. There wasn't the blanket method that Jesus used to minister. Paul ministered differently with every group of people. We need to be likewise minded. Who are the dogs? Who are the swine that he's referring to? Those who have blasphemed, opposed the truth, stopped the gospel under their feet. And what did they do? He just turned and he went away and left them. We see a little bit of an example in uh, Luke, I forget which chapter right now, um, where Jesus has been arrested and he's before Pilate. And then he's going to go to Herod. Jesus deals with them totally differently. Now, Pilate isn't saved. Herod wasn't saved. Pilate asked him a question, and Jesus answered. Pilate was curious. He was trying to discover some truth. Well, one of the things he discovered was he was a Galilean, and he says, oh, good, go to Herod. Herod, he goes to Herod. It tells you in the story, Herod had heard all about Jesus. He really wanted him to come and visit so he could see him do a miracle. And then it goes on and says, he and the other soldiers mocked and jeered and made fun of Jesus. When Herod asked questions, what did Jesus do? Nothing. He didn't answer with a word. An example. Even though Pilate... As part of the Roman government, he answered his questions. He treated him one way. Herod, who was a betrayal of a Jew with nothing but selfish motives, he ignored completely and did not cast his pearls before the swine. And we see that throughout Scripture with Jesus and his ministry and then after he ascends, we see it also in the disciples and Paul's ministry that they treated every situation different. And we need to do that as we evangelize. If you have a method of evangelizing that you use on everybody, it might work if you're really, really, really good at it 25% of the time. Because there's basically four types of personalities and you might connect with one of those four. But if you want to be successful in sharing the gospel, you need to discern. Who are they? How do they think? What's going on in their life? How do I communicate with them? How do I lower any barriers with them? And then once I've discovered who they are, what they're like, then now what should I, Lord, give me the words. What should I do? What should I say? Treat everyone differently. Your evangelistic success will just go up dramatically. Paul said it this way. You know what? I can be all things to all people. Now, if we apply that wrong, we said, don't you stand for anything? No, Paul's not saying that. I said, I stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, I can change my methods. I can change the manner of my ministry, but the truth will never change. That's what we as churches need to recognize. The message never changes, but our our methods, 
the manner in which we operate, the manner in which we do things needs to change to reach new generations as our culture changes. But the message cannot change. We do not want to be changing to become tolerant. We don't want to change so everybody wants to come here because we'll make them all feel good. Hopefully they feel good. But it's the truth that will set them free. So the message cannot change. And then there's a section of this chapter, verses 7 through 12, where it says, Ask, and it shall be given. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be given to the doors will open. And it kind of seems like, why is this in here, in the midst of this? Well, I think verse 12 ties it to the rest of the chapter. It says, Therefore, however you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. We have kind of modernized that and said, there's the golden rule. It's about judging again. I personally think that this ask, seek, find, knock, the whole thing is part of, you know what? I, if you haven't discovered yet, I have discovered there is really pretty much almost nothing in the Sermon on the Mount that I can do on my own. But I think if I ask and I seek and I knock, God will open the door of grace in my life that I can be those things. I can be salt. I can be light. I am the blessed. I am the mournful. I am these things. The grace of God is there. If nothing else, if we go through the Sermon on the Mount, there's amazing teaching by Jesus. We should be reminded over and over, holy cow, I cannot do this on my own. I need Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit living and dwelling in me. When that happens, all things are possible. Mike can even be these things. You can be these things. There's an unbelievable need for grace in the life of a Christian. Remember, this isn't ever about salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. But as Christians then, he says, this is, this, all the rest of this stuff should be how we live our life. And boy, it's hard to live our life like that if we're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit's leading. And frankly, we experience that every day or we'd be sinless. God knows that. But thank goodness there's forgiveness. Thank goodness there's grace. Bob mentioned a couple weeks ago about the narrow way, the gate. Narrow is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life. And he made it clear that, that there's only one way to eternal life, that's through Jesus Christ. That's it. It's a narrow way, narrow gate. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to approach the Father except through me. And once we've entered that gate, the door to the blessings of God opens up for us. There's all kinds of false prophets out there who would say there's so many different ways. We're all going to lead to God. There's so many roads. We just pick one that feels good to us. We'll all get there. That is baloney. There is amazing freedom once we've went through the gate. Amazing freedom. You know what? There is really no ditch once we're saved where we follow in and go, whoops, there went my salvation. There is a narrow way And he talks about that. I'm not going to go into that anymore. But we are saved by grace through faith. That's the only way to eternal life. The only way. 
And he does say some things, you know, I believe there are many, many people who think they're Christians and they're deceived and they really think it and they really believe it. You can study some of those verses about where he says, uh, depart from me, I never knew you. You can look at that and say, well, what does it really mean? I, I, don't, I don't know what it really means other than this. Works aren't going to get you anywhere. And, and we can be so deceived into thinking that we're saved because of something we've done. We just need to remember the message is always the gospel. The gospel. You know, when the woman at the well, she kept wanting to change the subject. Where should we worship? What are we supposed to do? How do I? Jesus just kept saying, you know, it's all frivolous. The gospel. The gospel. And she gets saved and goes into town and leads others to Christ. And then it closes with the, the houses, the two houses. It looks to me like these houses from the outside, we probably could have stood on the street. Maybe they're right next door to each other. They both look the same. They both look great. Both have nice wraparound decks, hot tub in the backyard. They look great. The only difference is the foundation. And this is something we need to be aware of. We can be so deceived. Everything looks great. A real Christian, maybe not. Depends on the foundation. What's the foundation? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's, the th- that's what we always want to be concerned about. What is our foundation? What are other people's foundation? The question is always the same. What do you do with the gospel of Christ? It's the firm foundation that we build our entire life on, and it's what determines eternity for us. Just touched on a lot of things. I hope the judging part resonates with us. One of the most important things for us to be effective as we go forward into this year and the next year as a church, as it is every year, is unity. Unity. There's a spirit of strife, a Jezebel spirit that always wants to come in and bring strife and division. When people and a church is divided, it cannot stand. We need to be of one mind, one purpose. We are united by the Holy Spirit. We can come from all these different towns that are represented here. We've got all these different personalities. We've got all these different stories that our lives are about. And we can come in here and we can be united in our passion for advancing the kingdom. And we'll talk some more about that, Lord willing, next week. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray that even as I have went through some of this so quickly this morning, Lord. I I pray that you draw us to the word. Holy Spirit, give us a hunger and thirst for the word. Give us an insatiable appetite for the word of God, truth. And Lord, I pray we, we would be vessels that would just be so desiring to be filled with your love that it would overflow through us. That we would be that powerful mixture of truth and love that it can impact not only our communities, but southwest Minnesota and beyond. The love of Jesus and the truth of your word can transform individuals, communities, and even nations. Lord, I pray we would be a part of what you're doing in southwest Minnesota. Pray now, Lord, as we go our different directions today, Lord, I pray for safety for all this, this weekend of, of Labor Day. There's much travel. 
much getting together with friends. We pray for safety, watch over us. Lord, I pray that we would take opportunities to, to share the good news of the gospel. Maybe just share our, our own testimony, our own witness, what you've done in our lives. I pray that those opportunities would come our way and that you would give us the grace to respond. So Lord, I pray that everything we do this week, this weekend, the rest of today, brings glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen.